We're in the book of Genesis today. If you uh, don't have a Bible, I encourage you to download our app, Genesis chapter 11. So thankful for all that God has just been so faithful to do uh, in this church and want to encourage you to take that guided tour. While you're taking the guided tour, make sure you sign up for the women's Christmas event. Uh, it's going to be amazing, ladies. You absolutely don't want to miss it. You know you can buy a whole bunch of tickets and then give them away to people. Uh, and then at 2 o'clock, I'll be over at the LV Reach Center. We'd love to see you there. Let's all stand together. <clears throat> yeah, what's up with laughing at that young... <laughs> you, can... you, you looked. That's, that's... You look. No, I love you, bro. bro. <laughs> I will get you later, you know it. You're not the only one that laughed at that. <laughs> All right, for first one, Genesis chapter 11. The Bible says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, uh, every word matters here, come, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly, they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God's response. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, and the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing, right, he loves people, he knows, well, we'll talk about the reason behind this, but he knows this is not good for people. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together today. Father, thank you, God. Thank you for how much you love us. Thank you, God, that you are involved. You do engage God, you're, you're not the God of the deist that just wound up time like a clock and then stepped back and has chosen not to be engaged in the affairs of humanity, but no, God, you do engage. You are involved. You do love us. And Father, we never want to have anything within our mindset, the way that we think or live, uh, that pushes you out. God, we want you to be at the center. We want you to be the focus. As we've read today already, we want your name to be made great in our lives and in this church. Father, we want to be thankful, realizing that every resource that we have has been graciously placed there by you. We have such reason to be thankful today and so we ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts, and Father, that uh, we would think the way that you want us to think. We ask, God, for an awakening in our nation. God, as our nation continually drifts 
further and further away from you. We know the solution, God, is a widespread work of your Holy Spirit. Hearts and minds that are transformed and changed. People today that are seeking to purge you out of their lives and out of the, the social square. God, your Holy Spirit, we can't, we can't legislate this into the heart of man. God, you have to do the work. And so please be merciful. Thank you for all that you've done in our country. And God, we're asking for one more great awakening. In Jesus' name, amen. On August 7, 1961, 26-year-old Major German Tidov became the second Soviet cosmonaut to successfully orbit the Earth and return to safety. Later, speaking at the World's Fair, enjoying the moment of glory, he sarcastically let everyone know that on his journey into space, he hadn't seen God. Contrast that with this. On Christmas Eve, 1968, three American astronauts were the first to go around the dark side of the moon, away from the Earth. Having fired their rockets on Apollo 8, they were homeward bound and got a glimpse of the Earth from an angle that no one had ever seen before. In the throes of this awe-inspiring moment, they opened the pages of the Bible to the book of Genesis and read for the world to hear, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> Look, I think that that is an apt picture of the contrast between a society based in secularism and a society based in Judeo-Christian values. When I say secularism or secularization, I'm talking about the historical process in which religion loses social and cultural significance. And there are some who say that we in America are in the midst of a great secular surge. In fact, The Atlantic, a magazine some of you probably are familiar with, was doing some research on this, and they discovered that the religious, unaffiliated, those who claim no religion, no belief in God, that percentage of people in our nation has ballooned from 6% in 1991 to 25% today. And you know, we see, we see, we feel, we experience uh, all of the secularization of our society on a daily basis. There's no denying it. But the truth is this, it didn't just begin today. It didn't just begin in our culture. We look all the way back to the story of uh, Babel, and we see what was happening then. And in fact, that is the first collective move towards secularizing society. The story that we read today really was the first push to purge the God of the Bible out of society. In fact, uh, I want to just let you know, give, give you some framework for today. This story is about a secular philosophical mindset, not about a physical building. Sometimes we think about the story of Babel and the, the, the languages that were confused, and we think about this building that was built, and really that's, that's just as far as we go. We, we think, well, you know, I mean, they were building a building, God wasn't happy with the style of building, you know, or maybe it wasn't built up to code or something like that. And so God, you know, demonstrated that he was displeased with this, and, and uh, we're not necessarily sure why, but uh, he dealt with it. But it, it's, it, it's not about a physical building. It's about a mindset of the people. There was something that they were thinking. There was an attitude that they had. You know, from a human perspective, this was the biggest undertaking to date from the perspective of a society. Uh, there was organization. 
There was leadership that was being leveraged. Uh, there was talent that was being leveraged. There was great effort being poured into this project. From a human perspective, this was the biggest big deal that humanity had ever experienced. But it wasn't just collectively organizing and gathering together and doing something good for humanity. At the root of all of this was an effort to purge the God of the Bible from society. They wanted to experiment with what it would be like to have life without God. And, you know, um, there was enough. Obviously, they didn't have the Bible at that point, but there was enough with respect to oral tradition. And remember, this is just after the story of the flood. And so everybody understands uh, the God of the, the, the monotheistic God, uh, ultimately of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, but, you know, when we think about humanity organizing and uh, collectively working on civilization, remember, it's not that God, as we read this story, you might think, well, God's anti-big city, God's anti-urban areas, um, God is anti-civilization, but that for sure is not the case. God is not anti-civilization or anti-human organization. God is not anti-urban area, but when those things become a replacement for him, it's a problem. And this was really what this effort was all about. It was a collective effort by society at the time to purge God out of society. It was an organized rebellion against God. And when you read in the Bible about Babylon, I'll tell you, from Genesis to Revelation, when you see Babylon presented, uh, remember, it always represents the anti-God. Genesis chapter 10 Nimrod builds Babylon. Nimrod was somebody who for sure was against God. We see uh, this effort uh, in establishing a structure that ascended into the heavens as something that fundamentally was against God. We see the children of Israel, the southern part of the kingdom, exiled to Babylon, which was, you know, that country was the ruling country at the time. It was the superpower of that era. Um, it represented everything that God was against, when the Israelites thought about a nation that was against God and against God's ways, they thought about Babylon. And part of their punishment for disobeying God was that they were exiled to the very place that would have been the most humiliating experience for them. And then as you follow Babylon all the way through into Scripture, what you recognize in the last days, in the end times, there is going to be a revived Babylon built this is going to be the center place. All of humanity will coalesce around Babylon, where there will be a one-world government, where there will be a one-world economic system, where there will be a one-world religious system, a religious system that includes all other religions except the God of the Bible. He will be purged out, and all other religions will find a place. And this revived Babylon, this, this Babylon that represents everything that God is against, this anti-God establishment of human power and intellectualism and technological advancement will be ruled and governed by the ultimate anti-God, the anti-Christ. And so when we read the story today, remember, we're talking about the seeds of secularism being, being planted within uh, the concept of society ultimately being expressed to the fullest extent in the end times. There are three things that we're going to learn from this story today about the secular mindset. Uh, and, you know, you might be thinking today, well, you know what, I don't have a secular mindset. I'm a Christian. 
Um, well, I'll tell you right now, like I said, from a national perspective, what we see is a, a secular surge happening all around us. So, so these things are important for us to consider. Um, in addition to that, it's important for us to remember that while we are believers in Jesus Christ, sometimes secular ways of thinking can begin to influence our attitudes and even our behaviors. So three things today. The first one is this. The secular mindset says we don't need God, we have people power and material resources. The secular mindset says we don't need God, we have people power and material resources. Now if you just sur resurvey verses 1 to 4, this is what you see. They came together, they said to one another, the Bible says in verse 3, the Bible says they said let us make bricks. It goes on to say they said let us build ourselves. Um, it goes on to say let us make a name for ourselves. And so from their perspective, they were thinking, hey, we really don't need God anymore because we have each other and we have all of these resources. You know, not only that, but they were really rejecting the command of God because God had said to Noah and to all generations that would come after Noah, go be fruitful and multiply. And instead of doing that, their message to each other was, no, let's gather together, let's unite and let's build for ourselves. They believed that through their collective power, they believed that through their ingenuity, they believed that through their intellect, they believed that through their technology, they had advanced beyond God. Now, I just want to ask you, does that sound familiar today? I mean, so many people that you talk to today are like, hey, well, you know what? We don't need God. That whole concept was a thing of the past. In fact, you know, um, mankind, just in the early days when man was really dumb, Man de devised this concept of God to explain what was otherwise unexplainable. And hey, listen, now we have science. Now we have technological advancements. We've grown way beyond that. We've grown way beyond God. Now, they're not, they wouldn't say God in the sense that they believe in God, but just as a construct of the mind of man. And this is, look, if you spend any time out in the marketplace talking about your faith in God, sometimes people look at you like, man, you're, a, you're, you're old. You got old ways of thinking. Listen, you poor, dumb person, right? You poor, dumb person that's committed intellectual suicide. Don't let those religious people do your thinking for you. We don't need God anymore. That whole concept found its birth here in Babel. It wasn't just that they were looking inward um, to their own collective ability and ingenuity and intellectual prowess and technological advancement. They also were looking to their own resources. They're like, look, we've got bricks, we've got mortar, we've got all the resources that we need. We don't need God anymore because we have an abundance of things. We don't need God because we can build this physical city. What they didn't realize, what all of those resources were present there for them to use because God had blessed them with them, right? I mean, easy for us. Easy for us to go through that cycle. And I think there is a cycle. I think there is a cycle that nations go through, and I think that there is a cycle that we as individuals can go through. We find ourselves in a place where we need God. Some catastrophic event has happened, there's some existential need that's right before us, and so we understand we can't meet that need ourselves, we need some divine uh, interposition, and so we plead to God, we ask God to help us, and what does God do? 
He helps us. We have a need for God. We turn to God. We get blessed by God. Pretty soon we find ourselves relying on and trusting in our blessings. And so we turn away from God, only ultimately to be judged by God. And then in that separation over the course of time, we find ourselves needing God again. So we turn to God. We get blessed by God. We turn away from God. We get judged by God. And then we find ourselves waking up again. And there's, there's this cycle that happens in our lives. And even sometimes as a nation, I mean, I think if anything describes our nation right now, it is that cycle. There was the recognition that we needed a God, and so we turned to God, and our nation was greatly blessed by God. And now we find ourselves turning away from him to the extent that we are seeking to secularize society and purge society from the God of the Bible, only to discover at some point that God will say to us, if that's what you want, then that's what you'll get. Then that's what you'll get. And then collectively, we'll find ourselves in this existential situation where we will desperately need God, and we will turn to him, and he will bless us. Listen, it's that point in the middle, right? It's the point in the middle. We need God, that's good. We turn to God, that's good. We get blessed by God, that's good. But the point in the middle sometimes is where we become so self-deceived. We begin to look at the resources, the resources and the blessings that God has given to us, and instead of trusting in and relying upon him, we put our trust in those resources. We begin to stand on the blessings. We begin to get comfortable and think, well, you know, God, I'm good. Hey, thanks. Thanks for stepping in. Thanks for giving me a hand. I'm all, I'm all set now. I'm good to go. You can help somebody else, right? Somebody else who has an existential need that's really in a real tough spot. And, and then we find ourselves uh, focused on the blessings of God and relying on and trusting in the blessings of God instead of the blesser through whom those blessings have come to us. It's uh, Thanksgiving week. Let me just remind you, the resources you have are a gift from God to generate gratitude for him, not independence from him. When God blesses your life, the fruit of that should be this. It should generate gratitude for him, not create an independence from him. It's Thanksgiving week, and um, I think that we have so much to be thankful for. We should be thankful for our nation. Uh, we should be thankful for the community of God's people that we're blessed to be a part of. Uh, we should be thankful for the salvation that God has given to us. Just re with respect to our nation, uh, you know, I was reflecting on this and I was drawn back to the initial proclamation that George Washington gave as he set aside the 26th day of November as a day to give thanks to God. Can I, can I read you part of the proclamation? Is that okay? Can I? I don't care if you don't want me to. I'm going to do it anyway. But check this out. This is so solid. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next to be devoted by the people of these states to to the service of the great and glorious being, who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country, previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, 
for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we've been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors with which he has been pleased to confer upon us. Next time somebody tells you that the God of the Bible had nothing to do with the founding of our nation, I want to encourage you just to go to this initial proclamation and read it to them. And I want to encourage you as well, this Thanksgiving, remember, Thanksgiving is not about gluttony, food coma, and football, all right? And, and some of us is like, oh man, here it comes, a whole day of eating till, you know, I'm going to puke, and then I'll fall asleep on the couch, my eyes will roll into the back of my head, and from time to time I'll wake up and catch the score, Right? That, that is not what Thanksgiving is about. And, and I, I hope, you know, if you have a family, that you're faithful to remind your children that what we're doing on this day is we are remembering the goodness of God to us, the faithfulness of God to us. Do we have a perfect nation? No, we don't. Have we come a long way? Yes, we have. Do we have a lot to be thankful for? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we used to have an event here, an outreach here um, on the property. It was called Bless Fest, and it was life-changing for many of us. And, you know, we thought a couple of years ago, it's been disrupted. You know, we had COVID uh, last year, and, um, but this was what we were thinking. You know, God, it's amazing for us to have uh, one day where we're really dedicated to pouring ourselves out for the people in need. In fact, God, on this Thanksgiving, what we want to do is dedicate it to you in gratitude by serving other people. And I know for a lot of you, it was like, man, this really just became part of a, a rhythm of our lives. And, you know, what we were thinking was, this is really good for us to do it one day out of the year, but what if we did it 365 days out of the year? And that's, that's what compelled us. That's what compelled us to take a step of faith and to build out the LV Reach Center, um, which is going to have an open house today, and hopefully the ministries will be up and rolling by the first of the year. Um, it provides all of us an opportunity to step into the most needy area of our city and to bring the love of Christ to people who really need it and to be able to have that. Right? To be able to have that throughout the year as a way to express to God how thankful we are for his blessings. You know, with respect to that, let me just say this. I do believe that governments based on Judeo-Christian values are the best for people. Governments, governments based on biblical principles are the best for people. And I'll tell you why. It's because they provide the most freedom. You say, well, why do they provide the most freedom? Because they're based on the concept of natural rights. They're, they're based on the concept that our rights come from the creator. In fact, that's the way the Declaration of Independence begins. That we believe that for all people, we are endowed with inalienable rights that have been given to us by our creator, as opposed to by the state, as opposed to by the government. Um, and that's how Marxism works. That's how 
communism, and socialism were. The rights of the citizen are derived from the state and are for the state. In that type of political system, your rights don't matter. What, it, what matters it, is the advancement of the state. And you have rights as long as it's in the best interest of the state. This is why in those countries, there's no freedom of the press, there's no freedom of speech, there's no freedom of assembly, because there are no natural rights, because it's a secular form of government and there is no God. There's no place for God in a secular form of government because God is a threat. It threatens the power of the state. And so in those situations, people living in those types of government, their rights as a citizen, their experience of freedom are given to them by the state or by the government. You don't have to look any further than North Korea, than the former Soviet Union, uh, than China. You don't have to look any further than Venezuela or Cuba. Look, we just spent the last week praying for the people of Cuba because, you know, there's a form of government that they're under, communism, that is absolutely secular. They don't even, when they have a disagreement with their government, they don't even have the freedom to peacefully protest. In fact, just this la in the last couple of weeks, a number of them had a peaceful protest using social media, and they were put in prison for that, some of them for eight years. And we're talking about young kids. Now, I just want to say to you today that the blessing of God has been upon our nation because it has been founded upon biblical principles, and we have a lot to be thankful for. The second thing the secular mindset says is this, we can create our own way to heaven. We can create our own way to heaven. Now, it wasn't just that they were looking to build a really tall building. You know, the Bible says that they were looking to build a building that ascended into heaven itself. And so archaeologists believe that this was a, a ziggurat, not a cigarette, but a ziggurat, a stepped pyramid, right? A stepped pyramid that ascended up into the heavens and the idea was this, hey, listen, we don't need God. We can build something that takes us up to God or takes us up to the gods. And in this construction process, they were looking to create a stairway to heaven. I'm not singing the song right now. <laughs> they were looking to build a bridge to God. They were looking to create something that would bring their false gods and goddesses down and enable them also to ascend up and to become like God. Why was this the case? Why was it that they were creating this alternate way? Well, because they didn't like the ways of God. They understood through the flood that God had divine expectations. There were moral expectations that God had on all people. And if they were not willing to fulfill them, then there were divine consequences consequences that God was going to bring. And this was not comfortable to them. It didn't fit within their philosophical paradigm. They wanted to live their lives a different way. And so, and so instead of submitting to God's way, instead of aligning themselves to what it was that God desired, they just chose to be creative and devise their own pathway to God. They created their own pathway to God. Most people believe this is the first attempt at organized religion. And you'll notice that they built this building that reached up or was going to reach up into the heavens because they wanted also to rise above God's justice. They wanted a way out machine. Hey, the last time, this is how it worked in their minds, the last time God flooded the earth and destroyed everybody except eight people. 
So what we'll do is we'll create an alternative that helps us rise above God's justice. If he floods the earth again, our building will be so high that we'll be untouched by the justice of God. How convenient is that? Anytime you see people creating their own alternative to the God of the Bible, this is precisely what they're doing. In fact, every man-made religion is based on human effort and philosophy, not on divine revelation. Today, for you, there may be areas that you struggle with with respect to God. You read the Bible, you talk to Christians, and you're like, well, I don't really like that. I don't really like the fact that God has moral expectations. I don't like the idea that God is concerned about the way I live my life and the way I treat people. I should be able to treat people the way I want to treat people. I should be able to make the decisions in my life that are the best for me from my perceived perspective. And so what do people do? Well, they, they create, they devise their own pathway. They, you, you know, today you might think, well, I don't like how exclusive God is. I don't like that there's one door that leads to the Father. I don't like that the Bible says there's one Savior. The Bible says there's one Deliverer. I don't like the, that the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It doesn't sit well with me. Well, let me ask you a question. Why doesn't it sit well with you? Have, have you asked yourself that question? Sometimes we're like, well, I just don't like it. You say, well, why don't you like it? It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. Well, before you discard God, maybe you better think about it. Maybe, maybe you ought to give it some thought. Maybe you should spend some time reading the Bible to understand why God chooses to do what he does. You know, when we were raising our kids, we're still raising our kids, um, we tried, to, we tried to not use the Bible to manage their behavior. So anytime there was something that they did that was in conflict with the desires of God, uh, it wasn't like we just said, hey, you can't do this because God doesn't like it, and it bugs me, so stop doing it. We would say, hey, listen, you need to not do this because this doesn't please God, and we want to explain to you why. Why is this dis displeasing to God? Why doesn't God like lying? I mean, like is, you know what I mean when I say like. Last service I said feel. I just couldn't come up with a better word. Why is God's disposition against lying the way that it is? Well, let's, let's talk about not just the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, but the very fact that he is your creator, that he knows what's best for you. In those areas where you may be struggling with God concerning some aspect of Christianity. I think one of the ways that we express our faith in maybe the greatest way is to say, you know what, God, I don't understand this, but I know Father knows best. I know you know what you're doing. I know uh, at the root of all of this is this amazing reality that you love me. You know, God's not some totalitarian ruler that's just up in heaven trying to give you a hard time. God's not looking down at your life saying, hey, you know what, I'd really like to make his life suck. So, you know, here's some rules that are going to ruin your life. Enjoy. You know, that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is this. I know you. I've made you. I've created you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. The extent of my love knows no bounds. This is why I sent my son to die on the cross in your place, that he might be resurrected from the dead so the path could be made, the one singular path the one stairway to heaven, the one ladder to me, that you would be able to come to know me in a personal relationship because my desire is this, that you would be with me in heaven forever. 
And not only that, not only that, but I know what's best for your life. Man, you want to have a blessed life? You want to have a fulfilling life? You want to have a life that is filled with the joy of the Lord? This is how you live it. Listen, the next time you find yourself in, in conflict with something that God has said, I want to encourage you. It's good to wrestle with God. You need to pray. You need to seek good, godly counsel. Hey, when you struggle with something in the Bible, don't go to your secular, atheistic friends to find out what they think, all right? They're not going to help you. They're not going to help you. Stop sur surfing the internet. Get off those social media pages and get some good, godly counsel, and then at the end of the day, say, you know what, God, I can be honest with you. I don't understand this, but I know that your heart is filled with love for me. The third thing, the third thing the secular mindset says is this. We can make our own name great instead of God's name. We can make our own name great instead of God's name. In fact, that's what they said in verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's make our name great. Um, we can elevate ourselves to the very place of God. This was what was collectively happening. Everyone thought it was a good idea. It was groupthink. It was an echo chamber. Hey, next time you're uh, with a group of people and you're all thinking the same thing, just remember that there's a possibility that everybody's wrong. Everybody's wrong. This is why you've got to go to the scripture. You know, because you can find yourself in a situation where you, you're surrounded by people that are reinforcing your stupid idea. <laughs> and they're going to they're gonna say, hey, yes, amen, bro, all the way to the cliff. Watch you go off it and say, well, that was dumb of you. Why'd you do that? It's like, well, wait, wait a minute. You told me, <laughs> you said you were with me on this. No, they're not, they're not with you. Listen, this idea was not new. In fact, we've studied the book of Genesis. You know, this was the same lie that the serpent said to Eve. Hey, God's holding out on you because he knows in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. You'll be like him. At the root of the serpent's lie was this desire that he had himself to ascend to the very place of God. I sh shared that with you last week, Isaiah 14, 13. I didn't read this verse, but this is at the root of all temptation. This is what the devil desired when he was Lucifer. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Like this was his desire to be in the very place of God. But then another voice comes and says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. I was thinking about this aspect and, you know, my mind just was drawn to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you guys remember who Nebuchadnezzar was? Nebi, good old ne Nebi. For those of you Veggie Tales people, really old. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, I know, that's like crazy, crazy old. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Babylon. Babylon was a superpower of the world at the time. And he thought he was he thought he was the most amazing thing ever, right? I mean, the most powerful man, no one could stand against him. You know, all these things, his intelligence, prowess, capacities had created. Well, when the Israelites, the southern kingdom, was exiled to Babylon, God raised up some young Jewish boys. One of them was Daniel. And you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he was disturbed by this dream. And so he called all of his wise guys, right? He basically was the first mob. He called all of his wise guys... 
And he's like, hey, listen, dudes, um, I need you to interpret this dream, but you're supposed to be connected to the supernatural. And so not only do you need to interpret the dream, you need to tell me what my dream was. I'm not going to tell you. And they're like, hey, no, no man has ever asked this of his magi before. And so you remember the story. Uh, he just starts slaughtering them, like one after another. The guy was totally intolerant. You want to talk about living in an intolerant society. That, that was intolerant. So he starts slaughtering them. Daniel finds out. Daniel prays. And then Daniel's brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember the story. D Daniel's like, hey, listen, king, this isn't me. There's one true God. And he's going to tell you not only what you dreamed, but what the dream meant. And so that's what happens. Daniel gets divine revelation. It comes straight from the heart of God. He shares it with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has this moment where he is hearing God. He's hearing God. And there's a huge shift, right, at least in word. He says, hey, I just realize now that the God of Daniel is the God of all gods. Of the pantheon of gods that we worship, he sits at the top. And then what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes and he builds an idol and he calls everyone to to bow down at the idol. He does the very opposite of what the revelation should have produced in his life. But as he builds this idol, and as he demands everybody globally bow down before it, as the band strikes up, as the band plays, there are three young Hebrew boys who are like, well, we're not doing that. We're not bowing to this idol, no matter what happens. And so you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are, are brought before the king. He's incensed. He's like, who the heck do you think you are? Like, I'm the king, and I could take your life right now if, if I wanted to. And they're like, king, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. We're for sure not bowing down to your idol, even if you kill us. And so I think I shared this last week. You remember, he, he fires up the, the, the furnace seven times hotter, throws them in, and as he's looking, not only are they not incinerated into ashes, but with them, there's one walking like the Son of God. And so he, he pulls them out, and, you know, there's second divine revelation, Second opportunity where Nebuchadnezzar is hearing from God, and, and he has another proclamation in word only, right? It hadn't, it hadn't gotten to his heart. And he's like, hey, the God of these young Hebrew boys is the God of all gods. Well, what happens next? We find Nebuchadnezzar cru cruising through his hanging gardens. And as he's walking through his hang hanging gardens, he's like, man, I'm killer. I mean, this is my paraphrase. <laughs> like, look how killer I am. Look how awesome I am. Look what my hands have made. And there was a voice that came from heaven in that very moment that said, your kingdom has departed from you. He was turned, he was metamorphosed into something like an animal. He had feathers and claws, and he groveled on the ground for seven years. For seven years. Until that was lifted from him, he came to his senses, and he said the third time, I believe that the God of the Israelites is the God above all gods. Listen, there, there, is this, there is this cycle that happens in our lives oftentimes where we have a need for God. We turn to God. We get blessed by God. And pretty soon, not only do we trust in our blessings, we somehow begin to think that these blessings are a product of our own capacities and abilities. We're like, hey, well, look at this business that I've made. I'm pretty, I'm pretty awesome. Hey, look at how I parent. Look at how good my kids are. Maybe I should be the one leading the seminar on parenting. Who, who, are, these, who are these jokers, right? And, uh, and you forget all those times where you're like, oh, God, help me. I'm such an idiot. Help me to raise my kids the right way. 
Financially, there's decisions that you've made and you've created, in your eyes, this amazing nest egg that you can retire into. And all of a sudden, you start thinking, man, this is pretty awesome. Look what I've done for myself. I'm going to cruise into retirement. And you forget that, listen, God was the one providing all the time. That in the hardest times, in the leanest times, you cried out to God and he heard you and he blessed you and he provided for you not to have a retirement of laziness, but to use that last season of your life for his eternal purposes for goodness sake. You know, sometimes we can find ourselves in the same spot that Nebuchadnezzar did, thinking that we are the ones that have created all of this and that our name should be exalted. As all of this is going down, as all of this is happening, um, from, the, from the perspective of a believer, man, look, look at how bad it is. Humanity is coalescing collectively around their own power. They're relying on their own technological advancements and capacities. They are seeking to purge God out of society itself. Let me tell you something. God was not stressed out. God was not like, oh, what are we going to do, man? This is so concerning. Look, look, look how bad it is. Look how off the rails humanity is. I'm so stressed out and filled with anxiety. That's not God's response. You know, every word from verse 5 to verse 9 is a point-by-point -point reaction of God. And it begins with, it begins by saying, the Lord came down. The Lord came down. It, it's almost as if God up in heaven is looking down on this tiny thing that's so, so small that he's actually got to get a closer look. Right? Humanity's like, check this city out. Check out how awesome we are. Look how smart we are. God, we don't need you. And God's like, what? What the heck is that down there? You know, I, I, can't, I can't even see it. I need to go down and take a look. Now, I know somebody here is like, well, Pastor, technically God doesn't need to go down and take a look because God's omnipresent. And look, I'm not looking out right now because I don't want to make eye contact with you. I know who you are. I know. And you'll come up to me right after the service. And so... Just for you today, I understand that God is omnipresent. <laughs> okay? All right? <laughs> and I love you for your post-sermon corrections, because I need them. But there's humor. Like in the Hebrew, there's humor here. If you're reading this in the original language, you're like, oh, man, God's totally making a point that we think we're so great and we have such abilities and the things that we do are so amazing and they might be compared to other people and other societies and other individuals. You know, maybe even you look at your own spiritual gift and you're like, man, I, compared to other people, I'm awesome. Compared to God, you suck. No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't help it. I shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have said it. Look, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm trying to say today. Let's keep things in the right perspective. Let's keep things in the right perspective. Look, our, we have, we have a, a wonderful nation, but let's not be exalting ourselves and puffing ourselves up and forgetting that all we have is ultimately, has ultimately come from God in the first place. I mean, it's interesting. There's a counterpoint to each of these things. Man says, come, let's go make. God says, come, let's go down. When I hear God say that, I, I hear the voice of a parent upstairs hearing their kids and basically saying, don't make me come down there. Like, don't, don't you make me. Don't you make me because you know what? I will. I will. Hey, I don't want to be in a place where I test the threshold of God. 
I don't want to be in a place where I'm like, hey, well, let me see how far I can get. Let me see what I can get away with. Let me keep pushing. Let me just keep pushing until God responds because then I'll know that's where the line is at. The long-suffering of God is his grace to you, not his accommodation for sin. You know, the rope that he gives you, don't hang yourself by it. Recognize that we're, we should, our effort should be, God, how far can I get away from the line, not how close can I get to it. Man says we have ourselves and our resources. God says, I'm going to confuse your language and scatter you. Man says we'll make our way to heaven. God says your little building, your little stairway to heaven is going to go unfinished. Man says we'll exalt ourselves in our name. God says your names are going to reflect the foolishness of your efforts. Babel and Balel are very close in Hebrew. One means gate of the gods. The other means confusion. And God says, I'm going to turn your gate of the gods, this amazing thing that you thought you've made, into total confusion. Let me tell you, with all of the social unrest around us, God is not stressed out. And neither should you be stressed out. Psalm 2, verse 1 says this, so good. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. I mean, if it ended there, it'd be like, man, this, is, this creates stress for me. Got all of this madness, and it seems so out of control, and the world is in such a state of chaos. What's your reaction? Well, the Bible says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God's like, hey, I'm not... I'm not worried about this. I'm not worried about this. Get your face out of social media. Get your face out of all the news networks. Remember that I'm sitting on my throne, and I'm in absolute control of everything. And what do we, yeah, what do we find in the next chapter? We find the calling of Abraham. So listen, chapter 11 and chapter 12 are intentionally juxtaposed to each other. Chapter 11 is, hey, this is what we're going to do as humanity. We're going to make our own way to God. We're going to coalesce our power. We're going to use technological advancements. We don't need God. We're going to purge God out of the social square. God says, I'm going to select a guy. I'm going to pick a guy. I'm going to pick Abraham. And you can try to make your way. I'm going to make my way to myself. I'm selecting Abraham. Through him, I'm going to bring my son, the Savior, the incarnate word of God, and he is going to build, build his eternal kingdom. This little foolish temporary thing that you think is so great is nothing compared to the eternal kingdom that I am going to build. The Babel in the Bible is always juxtaposed to the city of God, and God is bringing his city ultimately to those who, whose hearts and minds are turned towards him, which is why Jesus, when he started his ministry, he said this. He didn't say, let's build a social construct. He didn't say, let's create something with the mind of man and use the same methods that man uses because man's the most powerful. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The very kingdom is available to you if you just put your trust and faith in me. And this was why he paved the way. Through the cross, through that empty tomb, and descended to the very right hand of God. And the acknowledgement, the acknowledgement, let me just end with this today, the affirmation that this kingdom was the answer to what 
Humans were seeking to do at Babel. At Babel, listen, they had one language and then they were scattered because God confused their languages, many languages. And then what happens on the day of Pentecost? The people are gathered there in the upper room. They're seeking the face of God. There are people who had been scattered from all nations that had gathered to Jerusalem to worship God. The Spirit of God is poured out. The people of God speak with other tongues and those scattered people hear the disciples speaking in their own language the praises of God. What does God do? He takes the scattering and then he unites and affirms that there is one kingdom, there's one, one way into the kingdom, there's one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is what your heart has been longing for. Today, I just very simple encouragement for us. Three uh, antitheses to these three ways of thinking from a secular mindset. Secular mindset says we've got ourselves, we've got our resources. We as Christians say, God, we've never needed you more than we do now. We've never needed you more. Our nation's never needed you more. The church has never needed you more. And I've never needed you more. The secular mindset says, hey, we can make our way to God. The, the Bible, on the other hand, says there's only one way to the Father. Jesus says, I am the door. Enter by the narrow gate. There is one way to everlasting life. Peter said, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is the name of Jesus. And the third thing, the secular mindset says, hey, we can make our name great. The people of God say, hey, there's only one, there's only one name. It's not the church's name. It's not an organization's name. It's not the name of some political party. It is the name of Jesus. We want his name exalted above all names. Let's be thankful this week for all that God has graciously given to us. Let's pray together. God, thank you. We love you so much. And today we just want to acknowledge, we want to humble ourselves and acknowledge that you are the source of all blessings. We don't want to have a mindset that is secular in any way. And so, Father, if there's been ways of thinking that have encroached into our heart, into our mind, we pray that you would show us and lead us to a greater dependence upon you. And, Father, we thank you. Even in the midst of difficulty, God, we thank you for how good you've been to us. May this week be filled with gratitude and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.